Welcome to Talking Gardens and our special Chelsea Flower Show episodes. My name is Stephanie Mann and I'm the editor of Gardens Illustrated magazine. My guest this episode is up-and-coming designer Harry Holding, who's creating his first show garden at the show this year in the All About Plants category. I sat down with Harry before build-up began to find out more about his design. So Harry, you are doing the School Food Matters Garden in the All About Plants category at the Chelsea Flower Show this year. Absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the sort of theme of the garden? So we've partnered with the charity School Food Matters and you know, they've been working for 15 years to, to campaign for healthy, sustainable food in schools. And on top of that, they do a lot of greening projects in, in schools. So getting kids to grow their own food and even sell them at markets like Borough Market. So, so partnering with them, you know, after a few years of having a good relationship, you know, their brief was basically children are at the front and centre of this garden. So really the theme is about creating a space that's going to raise questions about food education, about healthy eating in schools, and also about sustainable food. Um, obviously, climate change and food is so so linked, so that, that's a huge part of the garden as well. And what kind of sort of research did you do when you started on the project? You know, did you, I assume, go and talk to loads of school kids about how they felt about food and growing? Absolutely. I mean, we we work with children a lot through our studio um, and schools generally. So we, we're always interacting with kids and, uh, and and food growing and various things have been a big part of my, my life and various different sort of businesses to do with it. So, you know, we've got a, a kind of bank as a, as a studio to, to lean on. And really, the inspiration was a little bit less research led. It was sort of thinking about that sort of awe and wonder of nature when you're a child. And particularly, I mean, thinking about memories of things like Alice in Wonderland and those sort of wacky landscapes and really if you take yourself and shrink down to a child's size and you have all these plants that are just sort of towering above you and and all these different features in a garden that it just must feel you know maybe we forget a little bit but it feels like this sort of really magical space so that was really our starting point and and through our work generally we we, we try and weave edible planting into our clients' gardens. So we kind of have a lot of research from doing that over the past few years generally. Yeah, and that fed in obviously to the design. For somebody who's going to the show and they're, you know, they're imagining they're going to stand in front of your garden, what are we actually going to see? Like what is the main sort of design, if you can conjure it for us in words, of what somebody would see if they were a visitor? It's basically an immersive, edible and kind of forageable landscape for children. So like I said, it's all, it's really highlighting the sort of access to nature and that, that core nature element. So when I say edible, a lot of people might think, you know, we're going to see more of an allotment with, you know, neat lines and rows of veg and, and quite a lot of bare soil maybe. But, you know, this, most people would look at it and think that's not edible. But then there's a few key plants that you start to think, oh, wait, there's something different about this space. And really the core reason for doing that for us is to move away from you know, plastic wrapped vegetables in supermarkets, you know, get as far away from that as possible and create this space that is like really, really inspiring. So it's not not just for children as well, but to inspire the public to kind of see it and think, wow, you know, th- this is incredible. And it's not necessarily going to be the answer for <laughs> the world's sort of food production issues, but it's, it's maybe going to inspire some people to bring a bit of that into their own garden and think, how can I um, interact my garden a different way? Maybe I'm 
you know that helping to sort of connect people more with nature which is was a, obviously a key thing this this that we struggle with in this sort of 21st century so it won't look like a typical edible space and that's what we really want to we want to sort of push the boundaries a bit and and make people kind of question what it, what what can edible food be and how are you sort of what, what is the design you know what are the elements and features that we're likely to see once it's built the features of the garden have been inspired by what School Food Matters do to really promote food education in schools and the wider public. And so we've got these round earth walls that, that represent soil, a natural sort of feeling shallow pool for water, um, these sort of ribbons of colourful pollinating plants to to really represent, you know, highlight the importance of pollinators in, in food production. And there's this sort of meandering child-sized path that, that sort of takes you through the space to this sort of central sanctuary where all these elements culminate. So really it will be a bit of a challenge for an adult to walk down it, but that's what we want to you know, imagine sort of, well, when you see children walking down the space as well and uh, having this sort of immersive quality to it where all the plants are towering above and these boulders are in a way that you've got to scramble over. And, you know, so it's a very natural space with, with only using natural materials. You know, that central wall as well is we're adorning it with beautiful painted quotes from children where we've workshopped at the school where we're going to be moving the garden to after the show. Um, so that's really good fun. So we're sort of highlighting you know, their, their thoughts on food and health and, and climate, uh, which is a really key element. So tell me about these rammed earth walls. I'm not sure everybody would understand how they're constructed. I think it's quite a challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. So I mean, round earth walls in their, their sort of traditional form are a little bit tricky in, in the UK because we have quite a wet climate, so they don't necessarily have as much longevity unless you sort of really cap them or maybe put a bit of a roof on them. So what we're actually creating are, are st- stabilised round earth walls. And the sustainability is really a, a core part of, of the messaging with this garden. So it might seem um, a little bit strange to be put in 10% of cement into the walls to make them a stabilised round earth wall. But for us, you know, when choosing materials, longevity is absolutely the core of it. So if it's going to be able to last indefinitely at the school that we're relocating it to, then, then that's much better than having a short, shorter life. So the embedded footprint is going to pay off as years to come. But that that sort of cement content has been a real moral dilemma for us. So we, we've actually researched and found this product called Semfree, and it's got 80% less embedded carbon in it than normal cement. So everything we're doing is sort of trying to really minimise the impact of this garden. But effectively, these walls, you you kind of get different aggregates together, make a kind of special blend of different things, wants to be quite gritty. You know, I originally I haven't made one before this, and I, I thought you'd maybe want more clay in there, but actually they're quite sort of gritty. And then we put our, the binder in, so cement or something similar. And then you basically sort of just layer it in and, and quite literally just get sort of a mattock upside down or, you know, a kind of rammer and just, or a pneumatic or drill or whatever, and just sort of really just compact it down until they're, until they're solid and let them cure over, over a few days, depending on the weather. So you sort of have like a frame that you build and then you kind of pack the earth in, is that it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's what I, I didn't mention there. So we've got to build the formwork. And I mean, the tricky thing for us is if we're building these in situ at Chelsea, which, you know, with 10 days to build a garden isn't, isn't possible. So we're building them off-site at our wonderful contractor, Landscape Associates, 
and we then have to move them to Chelsea and then move them on to to the school in Ealing. Yeah. Oh um, gosh, that sounds yeah. slightly terrifying. <laughs> You've got a round earth wall that you're going to try and move on a truck. Exactly. On a, oh my on goodness. A, yeah, Is that what you're there. losing sleep over at the moment? Certainly. Um <laughs> We've been doing some mock-ups, and I mean that that main central wall is the most curved one as well. Which uh, oh, curving as well, just curving, to you know yeah, make it so. even more difficult for yourself. Did you did you start the process of actually like you know doing the mock-ups and think why did I make them curved? <laughs> it's been painful, um, but but I think you know for us that that curve is, is so much more hitting on the points for kids, and mm. it creates this sort of sanctuary space around this pool, and you know makes it feel much more all-encompassing, but. Yeah, that that main wall is is over five tons. So moving that around and making sure it doesn't sort of you know crack as we go over a speed bump or, or something. But you know the, the, they're going to be solid and it will work. But we're sort of doing tests at the moment, um, so it's really good fun, but uh, definitely a bit of an experiment. Wow, I think you're very brave. But something else that you mentioned was the pool. Um, in the centre of the sort of sanctuary space that those lovely child-sized paths meander towards in the, in the centre of the garden. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I believe it's a winter wet or a seasonally wet sort of water feature. Yeah, as I've said, we're thinking really about climate and the future with this garden as well, being a garden for children. So although we're getting periods of, of drought, as we're seeing, and, and these sort of 40-degree heats that we had last year, and but we're also getting really wet winters. And so we, we've imagined this pool to be a sort of more seasonally wet pool. So it creates a bit of a moisture gradient through the garden. And and what that, that means is we can then mound in different areas to create drier areas and, and have more drought-tolerant planting. And ultimately, the, the majority of our plants in the garden are drought-tolerant and resilient for, for a changing climate. But we wanted to have that, that gradient to be able to showcase some some fun plants like, you know, we've got the classic rhubarb, but then we've got other things like the sort of shuttercock fern, which is a bit more of a unusual edible that has been a, certainly a key feature of some indigenous cultures. What do you, do you eat the, the roots? The, the, as the, the sort of ferns, the, the unf, as they're unfurling, um, you can sort of boil them and steam them and, you know, a bit of a kind of asparagus sort of flavour to them. You wouldn't believe how many shuttlecock ferns I have in my garden, so I think I'll be trying that this year. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, certainly not all, all ferns are edible, but that, that's definitely one of the perennial ones that, that you can eat. Yeah, I mean, you described the planting as edimental, which is a very sort of on-trend word. It's edible ornamentals. And I think it's something a bit like forest gardening was quite a, an interesting trend a few years ago. It was nice to revisit it in, in a new way. It might be worth maybe explaining to our listeners this concept of edimentals. There's definitely a sort of sweet spot of, of plants that are edible and beautiful. And, and I think that, that that's something we've been exploring. And like you say, a lot of that research comes from you know, some of the amazing people who have been doing forest gardening for, for many years and, and obviously historic forest gardens that have been going for thousands of years. And um, so really it's taking predominantly perennial vegetables or plants that are also edible. And so we've got things like, you know, an artichoke is, is a wonderful plant and, and these incredibly architectural form to it and the kind of glaucous tones and, you know, those sort of globe heads when they come through or something like a fennel, which you get this sort of stature and quite feathery, texture to it um, and obviously you know, scent and food as well. So there's there's a lot of plants that are 
very much have their place in an ornamental garden, um, and we've been really pushing this with our with our design practice. You know, exploring what really works well and what clients engage with. So yeah, the garden is really made up of a lot of edimentals, and and actually over eighty percent of the plants in the garden are edible. Is this edible though, in the way that people say, like, oh, you know, nettles are edible, or oh, you can eat that, right? There's a difference between you can eat that and that's tasty and worth eating. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And we we have everything. So the way that we're distinguishing is saying, yeah, you've got high quality edibles. You know, that could be pear or pomegranate. We haven't quite landed on which tree yet. Um, mulberry tree. We then, like I said, we've got artichoke, asparagus, fennel, lots of different herbs and strawberries, and some an- a few annuals in there. Um, like different lettuces or radishes, beetroots, um, things like that. And then also just some more unusual things. So, yeah, asphodeline is a, a plant that they used to eat in ancient Greek times. And you know, it's got these sort of roots that have a kind of nutty flavor to them. And, you know, we're not all going to be eating asphodeline roots. But it's, you know, it is fun to to bring back some of these plants that, you know, maybe used to be eaten or some that, Ultimately, you know, you might go out and grab 10 of our plants, some leaves from them and make, you know, really diverse salad. Um, It's not going to change your diet drastically, but it's something that can really enhance and and trying to get our clients to engage with with their garden and and, and help foster that sort of kind of nature connection that we all need. Um, So, yeah, it's a whole whole blend of uh, things. But yeah, definitely some weird and wacky ones in there as well. Yeah. Could you uh, name for us maybe uh, a couple more plants that people either may not know that they're edible or that you would really think, here's something that a bush, maybe a a shrub that you have in there or a flower that people may already have in their gardens, they wouldn't necessarily consider an edible. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got, um, I mean, Sambucus nigro, which is, uh, you know, amazing, the kind of elderberry. So obviously that's something that people may have in their garden ornamentally and you can make elderflower and you could batter the the flowers and and fry. But also things like, you know, sedum or what's called hylotelephium now, which actually those those sort of young, fresh leaves coming through add a kind of interesting texture and, and sort of quite fresh flavour, maybe slightly on the kind of cucumber spectrum, I guess, um, to a salad. Or you've got your kind of, I guess, your romex, your sort of sorrels, or say your, your bladder campion, so your silene vulgaris. And those, again, just a wonderful element that you can just sort of add to your salads. So there's a whole host of things that people may have in their gardens already. And it's just fun to kind of you know, bring a bit of that foraging idea into your own space. The sort of essence of this garden is about encouraging children to engage with nature and food and understand how food is grown, that it comes from the earth. Were you heavily influenced in your childhood? Were you connected to nature? Did you grow a lot as a child or was that sort of a relatively a thing that you got into when you were older? Uh, absolutely. I wouldn't say I I grew a lot of vegetables. I, I was allowed to have a patch in my, my parents' more ornamental garden Luckily, I, you know, I grew up in a family of of gardeners, not not professional, but hobby gardeners. And my my grandparents, you know, I'm very fortunate, spend a lot of time in their their sort of garden on the outskirts of of London, which is this sort of quite large suburban space. And um, my nan absolutely hates growing vegetables, but she's all about just experimenting and propagating plants. But I was always allowed to have an area that I could design an ornamental space, or I could grow some potatoes over here so it was really quite lucky actually and quite fortunate because I, I recognize certainly that not everyone has has access to that and then you know it was always a theme through my life so I'd 
set up a business with some friends who were at school called Grow Cook Eat, and it was about trying to create this product that really engaged children in that process of growing seeds and then actually going through to cook it. And and, and what and age were you when you did that? Uh, 16, 17. Wow. Um, and, you know, so then obviously now in our work, we we've work a lot in schools, partnered with this charity, Crew Energy, a renewable energy um, consultancy company, and we basically levy government grant money to deliver green projects in schools where maybe they don't have the ability to, say, plant pollution barriers. So we're, the, the council have money there for things like uh, green walls and green infrastructure that can really help to mitigate some of these effects of highly polluted urban streets that, that kids might be queuing outside to go to school or get into their school or something. So there's always, and we always weave edibles into that, you know, sort of things like strawberries and herbs. And it's so, yeah, throughout these sort of elements of work, you know, when we came across School Food Matters and had a relationship with them for the past few years. It was really inspiring and we, we wanted to do the show garden. So having this opportunity from Project Giving Back was really quite special. So they funded the space and you know, now we're here a year and year or so later and we're really excited for, for May. It wasn't quite such a clear-cut road from that 16-year-old kind of entrepreneurial growing project to you being a designer with your own studio now. I, I believe you... St- sort of did a lot of time in landscaping is that right not so much um landscaping more kind of garden aftercare and horticulture and um you know definitely bits of soft landscaping planting I, i'm certainly not a skilled landscaper by any stretch of imagination yeah so I, I i sort of had set up various companies throughout the year and, and set up a small company in australia for a year or so uh, or a year and a half or so and then Came back to London and set up my the current studio and and an aftercare company in 2016. So now we're a team of about 21. So we've got sort of teams of horticulturalists and designers and you know really some great some great minds in there. And uh, yeah, I think for me it's always been important to to have that that horticultural background and and really have had my hands in the soil and understand how plants work and how gardens are cared for and and what we try and do with the studio is you know really passionate about trying to be at that forefront of creating spaces that are, are challenging the conception of what is a sustainable garden or landscape and traditionally people might view that as a bit shabby looking or like eco gardens associated with things like permaculture which people imagine to be a bit hippie or something which messy is, yeah, yeah and messy and i think that you know we're trying to challenge that conception and create spaces that are really contemporary and and quite you know, have that wow factor that clients and the public can buy into. And I think trying to, but equally, they have this sort of, you know, great environmental credentials. So that's what we're really trying to push. And I think that, that so much of that is about longevity and having planting schemes and having materials that, that have a long life. And, you know, so much of that really is, is knowledge of how gardens work and how plants work. So, yeah, it's a bit of a segue into design and, and really kind of happy to be here and doing the first Chelsea garden. Yes, your first time at Chelsea. Have you done any other show gardens before? No. So this not. is your first show garden as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'd ask how you're feeling, but you've no idea what's about to happen to you, do you? <laughs> it's no. all I mean, maybe that's good. Maybe yeah, maybe it's better not to know and have that foreknowledge. But I'm sure everyone's been telling you it's really tough. Oh my God, you've no idea what you've got yourself in for. Absolutely. I am um, no, I had a I had a short segue for a couple of years after university into 
event management. Um, so I feel it's potentially going to be bringing together two of my passions, uh, which is going to be quite fun. Yeah. And what is the thing at the mo- this moment in time, it was recording this pre-show, that you're sort of most worried about or you think is going to be the biggest challenge? Um, I think probably two things. One being our, our tree. I sort of referenced earlier pear or pomegranate or one point it was an apple or I've had a bit of a, a, a slight saga with finding the right tree, um, let's say. So I'm, I'm confident we'll be fine. No problems there. But it has been a little bit a little bit of a stress. And these walls, like I say, trying to do these curved walls and, and move them about London is a little bit nerve-wracking. So anything can go wrong and there's not much margin for error there. So... But you know, all in planning. We've we've got we've got a little bit of time, and uh, and we've got a crack crack team on the case. So I'm sure it will all come together at the end. So as you said, when people hear the term edible in relation to planting, they do often think of you know allotments or like you say that sort of setup of a vegetable garden, even a nice looking potager. But but what you're proposing is something quite different. And I assume it being the Chelsea Flower Show that we're going to see some flowers as well in this garden. Yeah, so like I say, it's, it's definitely not like an allotment, but we have these, in particular with flowers, we have these sort of ribbons of colourful plants that are, you know, really incredible pollinators. Um, and those are sort of weaving their way through the space, really enhancing that sense of a journey that you're moving through. So we've got different things in there, a few edible and, and some certainly not edible and their, their role is for, like I say, pollinators. So we've got asphodeline, achilleas and salvias and you know, even things, fun things like nasturtiums and um, Californian poppies. So, you know, really kind of, it's a bit of a challenge in May to bring through some of those hotter colours that are more associated with the kind of late summer um, and that sort of heat of summer. So we're, we're sort of working hard to kind of create those hot, quite bright colours that, that, you know, this garden's for kids and, and kids really engage with that, I think. So, you know, but really the overall element with the garden and planting as well is that because it is being relocated to um, Alec Reed Primary School in London and to um, a portion of it, some of the wetter planting to the Beacon School in uh, Liverpool, we aren't designing this garden just for Chelsea. So that has been the core thing from the beginning. We're designing it to look good throughout the year. It's going to peak at Chelsea, obviously. You know, this is a show garden. But we really want it to have you know strong ecological principles. Um, so it's a multi-layered system and has different peaks throughout the year. And I think you know, we want those kids to be enjoying it you know, throughout every month and not just in May. So... And are you going to have any of the kids actually coming to the show? Absolutely. I think um, that we're in discussions at the moment and uh, Stephanie Sater, CEO of and founder of School Food Matters, has a wonderful idea of having kids sing a, a song about about food and, and vegetables on the garden. Um, so I think that that's going to kind of kick it all kick it all off really. And uh, something to look forward to on show week. Exactly, um, exactly. And then um, yeah, ho- hopefully we can have have plenty of kids visit throughout the week. You've said that the garden is sort of. Uh, climate change adapted, um, resilient. That term resilient, I think everyone's so used to the word sustainable and it can kind of mean, well, anything really, can't it? People can greenwash things to seem sustainable. But resilient is very specifically about, uh, like you say, longevity and managing to combat climate change through, you know, the way that you design. There's people listening who maybe don't yet really understand what we mean when we talk about resilient design or gardens that are resilient. Could you give 
listeners a few tips on things that they can do that could help make their gardens a little bit more resilient? I think as well, resilient for us in, in this garden is plants certainly that are adaptable. So with the changing climate, like I alluded to earlier, you know, we, we've got the extremes of summer heat, but then also you know those winter wet. So there's really narrows down. If you look at the kind of sort of summer heat and you go to the Mediterranean, there's an incredible palette of plants that you can really draw inspiration from. And, but you put them in sort of clay in the UK, they're just going to sort of rot over winter. So what is those sweet spot of plants that, that really can? And I think that in gardens, I think, think trying to think about ways to really take advantage of these situations. So if you were able to create different habitats and different moisture gradients, so you could dig down in certain areas which are going to allow you to plant plants which want more moisture and it's less likely to dry out during um, the summer heats and you can maybe mound up in other areas which are, can allow you to basically plant some of those more Mediterranean plants that can take the droughts and don't want the sort of wet over winter. So that's, that's one kind of simple thing that we do a lot in gardens and um, particularly if you're you know, maybe digging a, a wildlife pond or something, you know, rather than getting rid of that, that soil and spoil, then you, know, you can actually use it within the garden. But obviously, you know, to do that, you tend to need to have a bit of space. So maybe in on a balcony or something, you can you can quite literally control what you're putting into the pots. And, you know, if you want to grow things that are more drought tolerant and give them the kind of soils they want, these sort of gritty, sandy soils a lot of these Mediterranean plants need. Um, or other ones, you know, you could maybe try and create and build some resilience into the design thinking by maybe lining the pot to to be able to have you know, a moister, a more moist environment for plants that want that. So I think it really can come at every level of the thinking. And I think that trying to, you know, do a bit of research on your plants and ask ask the nursery, ask ask the, the people at the garden centre who really know about those plants and, and sort of test an experiment. And I think, yeah, a, a lot of what we do is trying to create the different habitats and find the plants that are going to suit those niches. And I know a lot, a lot of the plants that you've chosen are drought tolerant as well. Does that mean that you're maybe not going to be watering them during show week? Or is, you know, we know that show gardens are fantasy gardens, really, and they're all about the messages behind it. But yeah, how brave are you? <laughs> we'll be watering, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a key thing that I always talk to our clients about is all the schemes we try and achieve a general inbuilt drought tolerance. But, you know, drought tolerant plants are generally have that resilience because they really get their roots down so you know it does take that year two three four five years or how what depend on the plant to get their roots down and and therefore build in that that resilience so that when you do have the drought they can still access so yeah water is always key in in those early stages and particularly um, when you've got sort of show garden levels of uh you know sort of public looking at it we certainly want them to be looking their best so definitely be walking through the show and after the show you did mention that um this garden is going to be sort of dismantled and then disseminated to to two different schools is that right yeah we've got alec reed academy in ealing and that's where we're going to be moving most of the drought tolerant planting being in london um you know generally higher heats and that urban heat island effect and they'll also be getting the walls because for one, we don't want to transport them far, and two, you know, it would be a bit more fitting in that that kind of hotter London environment. And then um, we wanted to try and spread the benefit to as many children and families as possible. So uh, about twenty five percent of the garden is going to the Beacon Primary School in Liverpool, 
and that really will showcase a lot of the more uh, moisture-loving plants to suit the the sort of high levels of rainfall up in Liverpool. And yeah, there was a strong vetting process uh, that we went through with School Food Matters, who are obviously experts at doing this, um, and really about about schools that you know have the need, so spaces, you know, places where they can really the most children can get the most benefit from it. Um, and a lot of children who maybe are on, on free school meals or don't necessarily have access to green space themselves at home. So that's been a primary thing. But also, you know, what School for Matters know very well and what we've learned through our, our greening projects for schools is that you never want to impose something on a school. You know, my wife's a teacher and I know that schools are busy, teachers are stressed and tired and overworked and, you know, they don't necessarily have the knowledge or skills to look after a space or to create the time to in- incorporate it into the curriculum. So that's a really important element that these schools, they've, they've shown that, that commitment that they, they have the abilities and, and the, the drive to, to make the most out of the space. Because obviously, as we all know, no matter how resilient or drought tolerant or forgiving a garden might be, um, you know, a garden is only a gardener because we've garden it so yeah they they need that yeah the country is sort of littered with school hospital nursing home gardens that were open to great fanfare but yeah if you don't have the team to actually look after it those committed resources to help maintain it it's it doesn't last very long i mean that's part of resilience too isn't it i think that's the thing is you can create something that looks great and like you say you call it sustainable or greenwash away but if in a couple of years it's gone, then all of that energy is is, is you know, such a shame to, to really waste it. So that's why we haven't just designed it for Chelsea. We've, we've designed it thinking for the next 30 years or longer. You know, it, it, it really does need to and it evolve and adapt. So, you know, we're not going to just plonk this garden in the schools. We're workshopping with the schools to redesign the space and think about what they want. Do they want lots of space for having reading time or to, to be able to bring it into their curriculum or do they want space more for actually growing and gardening? So, you know, you need space to be able to actually plant out annuals, which take a lot more time and investment, which if they want to really teach kids about that process, fantastic. Whereas other schools might not um, have the resources for that. So they might want to just, you know, use it for um, even like a breakaway space for children who are, in need of a bit of a quiet, calming um, zone to relax in. And when you're workshopping with these kids, is that been a fun process? Been quite entertaining, you know, maybe to to see what they think about growing food or just about food in general, and and what they tell you that they would like. Have you been sort of surprised, amused by things that they've come up with? Always a source of uh, inspiration and and uh, and laughter. Sometimes you know, with them, it's it's great fun. They we were actually workshopping a couple of days ago with with Alec Reed um, and and the school council there, who are a wonderful bunch. And some of the things they are coming out with is, is fantastic. And you know, some of them I'm really amazed at the you know the experience that they've had their families and growing some quite unusual things, and um, they're already really engaged. And others. They haven't necessarily had the opportunity, but they're they're really excited and inspired by that idea generally. You know, when you just see them and you show these sort of maybe slightly unusual vegetables that they haven't seen before and you pass them around and the kind of funny questions and, 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 you know, their reactions when they maybe 
eats a raw leaf or something and go and spit it out in the bin. Or, you know, it's always a source of uh, amusement, which is great fun. You showed me some of the quotes that have come from them. And I think the one that I found the most amusing was that pineapple does belong on a pizza. <laughs> Absolutely. And we had one girl saying, uh, my favourite food is pizzas. And then went on to say, you know, her, her least favourite food, she absolutely hates tomatoes. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> You didn't point out to her the tomato sauce on well, her pizza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, obviously maybe when she gets to potentially at school grow her own tomato and that, you know, who will probably remember if we've had to f- been fortunate enough to grow our own tomatoes. And if you eat that delightful cherry tomato and how it just sort of explodes in your mouth, I mean, it's a completely different um, experience, isn't it? That was Harry Holden, who's designing the School Food Matters Garden for the 2023 Chelsea Flower Show. We're taking a break for now, but we'll be back soon with more great guests talking gardens. Until then, you can find lots of great Chelsea and gardening insights online at gardensillustrated.com. 